uh, the one thing that, that really disgusts me, honestly, when it comes to church is when we get into this self-centered mode and make it all about us, and we think that uh, we are here and that everyone in the church should cater to us and that, um, honestly, where I get even more disgusted is as a church, we are here in the community and we think the community should cater to us as a church. I've sat in business meetings with uh, community leaders over the last couple months and uh, we sit down and we talk and, uh, and we talk business. And I say, just because I'm a church does not mean I expect anything other than you to conduct your business in an ethical way. I don't ask any favors. And I, I just get, it just kind of makes me have that little bit of um, acid reflux or a verp in your mouth. You know what I'm talking about? When the church is portrayed that way in society, it just disgusts me because we just get into this thing where you know, we, we feel like if God is on our side, everyone should cater to us. And then we start to use and abuse our relationship with God to get what we want. And that really aggravates me. Over the next three weeks, we're, gonna, we're still in the book of Matthew, and we'll probably be there till the end of the summer. If you're new to the creek, we started a year ago, and we just started preaching and teaching through the book of Matthew, and here we are. We're at Matthew chapter 18 today. And uh, the next three chapters, we're actually going to title, It's Not About Me, because we, we just have to get into this, this mindset, and we're going to visit this often. Now, we're going to get into some touchy subjects this morning, and you're probably going to wonder, did something happen to where Matt's teaching and preaching this? No, nothing happened, okay? We are teaching through the book of Matthew. We're going to speak truth. We're going to teach the Bible. We're going to teach the gospel. And we're going to make Jesus very clear. We are in Matthew 18. There's nothing going on. Actually, this is a great maintenance mode because we don't have any major problems going on. And if we will get this teaching and let it soak into our core and live according to this teaching and this gospel, then we will avoid a whole lot of church issues down the line. Trust me. When we get anything other than Jesus as the sinner, we start really getting into some areas where we start messing with each other and, and get way off base. Um, when we make it about us, honestly, we get miserable. We get selfish. I mean, when, when it's all about me, I can have... Think about this. If you were to get everything that you want, you still would be miserable because it would never be enough. It would never be fulfilling. It would never be satisfying. It would never fulfill everything in your life. Because when we start to get everything we want, we become selfish and self-centered. And that just becomes this black hole that starts to envelop everything in us and around us and just consume us. But when we make Jesus the center, then things start to change. If we glorify Jesus, you know what happens? He makes sure his followers get glorified. If, if we will just stay focused on glorifying God and living this missional life with Jesus, He'll make sure we get glorified. If we glorify ourselves, you know what Jesus gets? Nothing. He doesn't even get an invitation to the meeting. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is as we go through this teaching, you have this, this Copernican revolution in your, in your spiritual life. Copernicus was a man that, that honestly the church fought very hard against because there was a belief that the earth was the center of the universe, that everything in the universe revolved around the earth. And then this man Copernicus comes on the scene and starts to, to provide theories and evidence that it's not the earth that is the center of the universe, but the sun. 
and that everything revolves around the sun. The church was the biggest opponent to this. Why? Because we have a great ability to be self-centered and self-focused. If, every, if we're the center, if the earth is the center, then everything revolves around me. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that you go through this, this revolution of your soul, that you move from a geocentric view of God, that, that God revolves around you, to a heliocentric view in that everything revolves around God. The geocentric was the, the view that the earth is the center and everything revolves around the earth. The heliocentric is here's the sun and everything revolves around the sun. And so let's change this to where everything in our life revolves around the sun, the S-O-N. Son, okay? So we're going to get into this, uh, Matthew chapter 18, and we're just going to teach this. I've got to boogie through this because there's some things I want to do at the end, and so I'm going to move kind of quick just in case I get long-winded because you know that never happens with me. I love you guys, man. You guys got my back. That's what I love about you. All right, uh, Matthew chapter 18. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit and then we're going we're gonna to dive into this because we're actually going to build up to everything that's coming in at the end. So we'll start in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, here's an interesting thing. A couple of chapters ago, what did Jesus ask them? He said, Who do, who do you say I am? And they, they end up saying, truly, you are the son of God. So in a couple of chapters, we see these disciples, these followers of Jesus go from truly, you are the son of God to place again at the center to, okay, Jesus, now who do you say I am? And so we, and you know, they've been talking about this. They actually had a discussion on the road about who's the greatest. And so they're, they're kind of driving this to Jesus and saying, okay, Jesus, we know who you are. You're the son of God and, and truly you are. And now you tell us who we are. This is the beginning of church politics here, by the way. Every deacon scrap, every, every uh, church lady that goes behind somebody's back, it, it all starts right here because we get from this mindset of Jesus saying, who do you say I am? Remember, that's the most important question in the universe. Who do you say I am? Truly, you are the son of God. And then we start getting in, and, and this is where the enemy is very crafty, kind of spinning around to say, okay, Jesus, now who do you say I am? Because when we think we have importance in the church, oh, it gets political, baby. And we start trying to build our own kingdom. As a church, we are never to build our kingdom or our empire. It's about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. As long as he stays on the throne and we keep building his kingdom, we can avoid a lot of the political um, stuff, we'll call it. Okay, verse 2. Um, he called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is kind of a little contrary to our societal beliefs because we tend to exalt children much higher um, than we should. We, we almost get into an unhealthy mode of worshiping our children. Abby was gone this week, and Lars in Canada, and I was having this pity party, and, and we actually get into this mode where we kind of worship and, and exalt our children. Let's bring it back to the context here in the first century. A child was considered a possession. Okay, the word for child in Aramaic, which is what Jesus would have probably been speaking, the word for servant, slave, and child were the same. Now, it doesn't mean we abuse our kids, you know. <laughs> hey, Abby, guess what? Since you're back, 
I did all the yard work this week. Now that you're home, kid, you know, good luck with all that. You're going to dig up the sprinkler line. Anyway, um, but what, what he's saying is we've got to humble ourselves. Kids in the first century were very grateful for their fathers because their fathers provided everything for the household. They were grateful and they were humble to be able to be in the household they were. And what, what he's saying here, what Jesus is saying here, is we have to humble ourselves and become like a child and be grateful that God is our father. Understand this. You gave birth to your kids. Your kids didn't give birth to you, okay? You didn't give birth to your kids because they were the best option around, okay? Okay, God chose you and chose the kids that, that you have, and so we need to be grateful to God for that blessing. We need to be grateful that we're counted as sons and daughters of the king. And I, I think when we get into this mode, it starts to change our mindset our mind, our mind shift, our mindset to understand that, that we can then begin to accept other people. Because think about kids. I, I, kids are just probably the most pure in heart when you watch them on the playground. Yeah, they, they, they have their nitpicky stuff, but welcome to being human. But for the most part, look, watch how humble they play. And watch how they look up to their moms and their dads. Now, we have a great way of messing that up. But, but look at that purity for a moment. You see, God accepts us, and in turn, we should accept each other. We don't become self-centered and decide who we let in and who we don't let in. I mean, I'm so glad God isn't that way, because if God was that way, I'm sure I would never be able to have an opportunity to have a relationship with him, because I'm just not good enough. But that's where grace and love comes in. Verse 5, and whoever welcomes a child lost my place. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What Jesus is talking about here, he's not talking about children per se, but he's talking about people who come to him as children. When, when you humble yourself and give your life to Christ, you are humbling yourself as a child. And, and, and when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Jesus, what do I have to do about this eternal life thing? And he said, you must be reborn. I mean, you have to enter as a child. You know, spirit has to give birth to spirit. There has to be a, a rebirth process. That's what we get in, the, in, in churches, born again, or, or transformed, or new believer, or Christian. It means that you are a transformed person. God, through the Holy Spirit, takes what's inside and regenerates that and makes it new. I've said this several weeks, the, the, the caterpillar comes out of the cocoon, and that's only through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, if you, if you cause any of these to stumble and to sin, you might as well throw a stone around your neck and be tossed into the depths of the sea. Now, there's two types of millstones in this, in this culture. One was a, about the size that one man could carry on his own that you would work wheat with. I mean, that's pretty bad. That's bad enough. I mean, try going out to Eagle Mountain Lake and swimming out with that around your neck. I mean, that's pretty bad. You'd tread water for a little while. The other millstone was a stone that was so large that it took an ox, a donkey, or a team to pull. And what he's saying here in the Greek context, in the Greek word he uses for millstone, it's the supersize. It's the industrial pack, baby. It's the extra strength millstone. Now, you ain't going to make it one second for that. And he's being severe about teaching people not to be humble. 
What he's saying here is if you teach people to be prideful, if you teach people not to be humble, or you abuse humility, you might as well take the stone, baby, and go swimming. I mean, Jesus is that serious about humility. And he's that serious about having a lack of pride in our life. He gives grace to who? The humble. You want, you want to get Jesus on your bad side? Walk around with a prideful heart. Swell up. You want to, you want to have Jesus' affection? Be humble. Be hum, live in humility. He's, not ta- he's talking about sins, but I think in specifically with the context, he's talking here about pride. He says, Woe to the world, in verse 7, because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire. Jesus is using what's called hyperbole. He's using an exaggeration to make a point. We live in Texas. We never use exaggerations, do we? I mean, we understand that. Actually, in Texas, what an exaggeration is. Truth, I think. But he's using exaggeration to make a point. If if this was literal, I would be standing before you as probably a pirate. Okay, I would have no arms and no legs and no eyes. And all I could say is, you know, I I don't know. But... uh, He's using this as an exaggeration. What he's really driving to is say, look, sin is a serious issue in your life. You need to deal with your sin drastically. You need to deal with it completely. I mean, you need to forsake it. You need to repent and confess and repent of your sin and walk away from it. And and he's saying, don't mess around with this. One of the early church fathers, Origen, took this passage literally And his sin of choice, we'll say, was lust. Yeah, do the math. You can adjust in your chairs, guys. The problem is that didn't solve the sin issue because sin is an issue of the heart. You've got to deal with the root of sin. You've got to get in there and and, and let the Holy Spirit show you exactly where that root goes all the way inside. And say, God, if there is an evil way in me, bring it up. Let's deal with it. Let's bring it to the surface. And you confess. Confession is simply this, agreeing. You're saying, God, I agree this is an issue in my life. And repenting is turning from it. Say, God, that is an issue. That brings death into my life and I want to walk away from it. And then you forsake it. You keep moving. You walk completely away from it. You see, when we have this childlike humility with Jesus... It allows us to be childlike and not childish. And so when we come, when we are humble and we're childlike, we put Jesus in the proper place among us. And when Jesus is in the proper place, that's when we become a community of people that can actually accomplish something for the kingdom. And so how do we, how do we move on from that, from being childlike and keep from being self-centered? We care for the lost. Caring for the lost is going to keep us from being self-centered. Let's read uh, verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I 
tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And then in the footnote of your Bible is verse 11. The Son of Man came to save what was lost. So Jesus says, I've come here for a mission. And, and the beautiful thing is, who does he use to help seek and save the lost? Us. He allows us to be a part of this mission. He allows us to get involved with caring for the lost. You see, we, if you read this, verse 12 through 14, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. You see, we need to exist primarily for those who aren't here. When we become self-centered, we become all about us. I don't think we should exist only for those who are not here yet. That's unhealthy. Now, as a church, we're going to support you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to help you get healthy. But the whole goal is not to come in here and sit. The whole goal is to get out and, and help Jesus seek and save I mean, it's kind of like as, a, as the church, we're supposed to get out and go, Jesus, I found one. And Jesus is like, I can do what I can do best. See, the happiness is where the shepherd is, not in the pen. I think as churches, we get in this mode of it becomes about us, and we think to get the sheep that are out there lost on the hillsides, we've got to build a better sheep pen. We've got to make the sheep pen more attractive. We've got to be more sensitive to the lost sheep because when they drive by and they see that, that sheep pen, they're like, that's where I want to go. I've got this God-shaped hole in my heart and I think that sheep pen's going to fill it. No, that's bad theology. Ooh, uh, that was a bad joke. But um, it's not about building better sheep pens. I, I, I get hear this term in the church circles called seeker-sensitive. Let, let me help correct something there. A seeker-sensitive church is not somebody who waters the gospel down and makes it attractive for people to come in. Well, we know that people, you know, Jesus can be a little offensive, so let's water it down and let's help them feel comfortable, and then we'll kind of pull the rug out from under them with truth. (laughs) Nay, nay, I say to thee. Seeker-sensitive is this. We've got to go out and seek lost sheep very sensitively. Okay? We go into our neighborhoods, into our schools, in our places of work, where we do life, where we live life, and we live life with the sensitivity that Jesus is moving in us and he's seeking people out. And when we're sensitive, that leads us into a relationship that we can say, come with me. That's where the happiness is. If we make it about us, we accomplish nothing. We could have this nice building and sit and accomplish absolutely nothing. That's why I'm, I'm more content to, to set up and, and have our gatherings in a children's courtyard than to make this nice place where we think people are going to be attracted to. We tend to think that, that finding lost sheep and growing the kingdom of heaven is like hanging a church-like bug light out in our community and people are like, oh, that's just where I want to go. It's just, It's frustrating. And our society drives that and we follow that. Well, we've got to have a best bug light in town. (laughs) I'd rather, never mind. We'll just keep going. I'd rather be out on the hillside with Jesus than sitting in a sheep pen because sheep who stay in the pen all the time end up biting each other. They end up trampling each other. 
They end up stepping on each other. I mean, think about it. We're a church. We run about 160 a weekend. That's enough people to start rubbing people the wrong way. Would you not agree? I mean, I live in a house with three people, and we can start rubbing each other the wrong way. We've got to have grace. We've got to have mercy and forgiveness working amongst us. Otherwise, we're going to start biting each other, stepping on each other. And like I said, there's nothing going on. I'm not preaching at anyone this morning. If anything, I'm teaching to Matt because I need this idea of forgiveness and grace at work in my life more than anyone I can imagine because I know me. And when God reveals me to me, I get scared. I get disgusted. And it drives me to his grace and his mercy. And I would much rather be where there's happiness, and that's with the shepherd, than sitting in a pen amongst all the stink. How do we get there? It's forgiveness. Forgiveness is the cure. Let's, let's read this, and this is where I want to spend the bulk of the, the remainder of our time here. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That doesn't mean you go blabbing to other people. Let me walk you through this carefully. If your brother sins against you or your sister sins against you, and, and he says sins against you, not rubs you the wrong way, not makes you upset, but sins against you, then you go to that person. You need to make sure that you're in the right frame of mind, that you're in the right spirit, that you have prayed about this, that the timing is right, and you go in humility, not trying to prove yourself right, but trying to put Jesus back in his proper place in both of your lives. Okay? And if they don't agree with that or accept that, then you get some people that can go with you. You don't go blab about it to other people. You get two or three trusted people who are mature in their faith, that can sit down and be objective. And then you go and have that meeting. And then he says this, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That doesn't mean that you come and say, okay, let's say I have a grievance. Let's say Ryan and I have a little spat. And I go to Ryan and go, Ryan, man, I just, we need to talk about this. This isn't right. And he says, no, 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 you're wrong. And and so we sit down with two or three people that can be objective because I need to be able to hear just as much. No, Matt, I think you're in the wrong on this. Because that's happened a couple times. (laughs) And then if neither one of us are willing to budge after that, that doesn't mean that at this point of the message I call Ryan up and stand him in front of y'all and go, this is what Ryan's doing. (laughs) And I start preaching against Ryan. We're not going to preach against anything. We're going to preach Jesus. But the church is the elders. We have a leadership structure and elders, and they're very objective. Our elders are the ones that help keep me in line because I'll get into these, I'll go, get off into these things. Well, maybe we should do this. And I'm like, no, no, let's back up. Let's be objective. That's what he's saying. That's how to handle this conflict. There's two types of weird people in churches, by the way. Those that won't confront anything and those that want to confront everything. Okay, let's, let's balance it out here a little bit. Okay, let's, let's, let's handle this right because the goal here, always the goal is resolution. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, let, here, here's what you've got to understand. Treat him as a pagan or tax collector. That doesn't give you the right 
to then hate that person. Okay, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? I think he treated them with more grace than he did the religious leaders. It means you treat that person with grace. You treat that person with love, but you keep a distance. You don't let them have influence in your life. But you also extend that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness. Peter said to him in verse 21, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven. The rabbis of the day said three was the maximum. Peter's been super spiritual and saying seven, and Jesus takes it all the way. He said, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And then he tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and let him go and canceled his debt. You see, what happens here is Jesus is telling this parable to Peter to say, you just keep forgiving. As many times as someone sins against you, you keep forgiving. Forgiveness means this. It means to send something away. And he's saying, as often as it comes back, keep sending it away. It doesn't mean you deny it. You have to acknowledge that it hurts there. It doesn't mean you forget it. Well, what if I can't forget it? I can't erase your hard drive. I wish I could. I wish I could do alt-control-delete or something, and and all the past hurts and everything in your life is just wiped clean. And that when that grace of God comes into your life, all that's gone. But I, I, I can't promise that. That's God's job. That's the work of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. But what you can do is your part, and that's to send it away. To say, you know what, I'm not going to let that hurt have influence in my life. I'm not going to let that hurt or that, that issue with, with my brother or my sister become the root of bitterness within me. And I'm not going to let that drive how I feel through everything in my life. I'm not going to carry it anymore. And what happens is we begin to to cast this away. We begin to give forgiveness and we begin to lighten our load because we're not designed to live with it. And God says, I didn't design you to carry this anyway. You need to move it. Now that doesn't mean, because I know that a lot of you have dealt with a lot of hurts in your past. Okay, it doesn't mean in forgiveness that you can't inflict justice. Now, if you're in an abusive situation, you need to get out. You don't forgive and say, okay, by the way, here are my kids and me again. You get out. You can inflict justice. You just cannot take revenge. You cannot hate the person. You cannot let it change how you feel spiritually about that person. I cannot like what you did to me, but I still love you. Now, in my love for you, we will create a safe distance between each other, but I will love you. I'm not going to carry unforgiveness in my heart. It's just like this king settling accounts. This man that was brought before the king owed him several million dollars. Okay, this is the first century, folks. I don't owe people several million dollars right now. I don't know how I would get out of that kind of debt. And this king says, I'm canceling it because of your humility. You see, forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. 
Every time that I ask forgiveness of my sins, Jesus has paid for that. He offers that forgiveness and grace to me free. It's a gift. I just ask for it. I don't have to work for it. I don't earn it. But it cost Jesus his life. It cost Jesus his place in heaven to step on earth so that he could be my sacrifice and make that payment for my sin. And so every time that I ask God to forgive me, I need, I need to understand it's free, but it's not cheap. And so this man has been forgiven. His debt was canceled. Verse 28 and 29. But when the servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, that's a couple thousand dollars. Okay, get the picture. A man's just been forgiven of several million dollars and he goes out and finds a man who owes him several thousand dollars and this is what happens. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. There's a contrast here going on. Do you see that? I mean, it's pretty blatant. But what you have, you have the king, God, you have him canceling the debt and letting go. And then what do you have the man who's been shown this mercy? He's grabbing and choking. He's holding on. And then what he does is he sends this man to prison. When this man's in prison, there's no way he's going to pay him back. Think about it. He's just sent this man to prison and there's no way he's going to get back anything. And you have what you have here is you have a humble Savior and a proud sinner. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. You've got to understand something. Unforgiveness hurts us more than the person who wronged us. When you hold on to it every time, it's going to hurt us more. It will hurt you more than the person who did the wrong. I I heard it said this way, unforgiveness is like you drinking the poison and waiting for the other person to die. I put that in your notes because we've got to remember that. Whenever we decide that we are not going to forgive and we're going to hold on to that, we're drinking that poison. And we're hoping through us drinking, the other person's going to suffer consequences. Well, I want that person to hurt for what they did for me, to me. And it's not going to happen. We've got to give God a chance to do what he does best, and that's change people's lives. You know, God says, you keep holding on to this, and you're not giving me the opportunity to do anything. Then this master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So now both guys are in jail. Unforgiveness is going to put both people in prison. God's plan is none go to jail. You see, God desires that all come to repentance. None should perish. But when we start making ourselves the center and bringing it in to be all about me, then we begin to put other people in prison and then we live in prison and there's nothing that's going to happen. All we're going to do is we're going to sit in our bitterness and rot. And I'm not talking the comfortable prison that we have today. You will sit and rot 
in your, in your self-pity, in your loathing, in your unforgiveness. It will be an unhealthy cancer that will consume you from the inside out. And the only cure is to humble yourself before the throne of grace and say, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me. I cannot pay this back. I cannot let this go under my own power. Give me the power to let it go. And he gives us that ability and that grace washes over us. When forgiveness is working in us, then God can work through us. And then we begin to accomplish things for the kingdom. We begin to move into a son-centered environment where everything is about Jesus. So my challenge to you this morning is simply forgive. I know as soon as I said that, names and faces Events and actions, wrongdoings, hurts, scars, bruises, all of that came bubbling to the surface. And it's yours to deal with. And my hope is that you don't just push it down and hold on to it, but forgive. You send it away. We're going to do something a little different at the end of our teaching this morning. The band's going to come up. I'm going to pray for us. <coughs> the band's going to come up. And I've got some sandboxes with nails. And what I want you to do is I want you to come up and take a nail and write in the sand. It might be that hurt. It might be the person's name. It might be an event, whatever it is you're holding on to. It might even be your own sin that you've yet to deal with. But I want you to take that nail and I want you to write it in the sand. And I just simply want you to say this. There's, there's nothing magic about this. It's just, God, I'm sending it away. And I know this teaching isn't going to fix every issue of forgiveness or unforgiveness that you have in your life, but my prayer is that it starts a process. I mean, God has the power to completely change it and take it away. Yes, he does. But more often, it starts a process. And we begin to walk. And we begin to soften. And we begin to move and change. And God continues to transform us into a person that can forgive because we've been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your humility so that we can live a humble life so that we can live a life that reflects you and reflects the humility. We ask that you forgive us for being self-centered. God, where we have hurt others and where we have been hurt, we just ask that forgiveness, oh God, that your forgiveness just washes over us. We quit living in our self-pity. We quit living in our self-centeredness and our selfishness. But God, that you transform us to be forgiving, humble, grateful people who have the power and ability to accept one another as you accept us. God, forgive us for thinking that your kingdom is an exclusive circle of people we can choose
to let in or kick out. God, we're bound by your Holy Spirit. We're brothers and we're sisters. Help us to live as such. God, help us to be quick to humble ourselves, quick to repent, quick to forgive. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you do only what you can do in our life this morning, that as as we think of those hurts and those wrongs against us, that just as you settled accounts with grace in Jesus' blood, Father, we can step up and we can settle our accounts with grace in the blood of Jesus. Father, here we are and we humble ourselves together in front of you. Thank you for being a humble Savior. We love you so much. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.